Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld. I'm your host for today. I'm a general pediatrician in the Cincinnati area, and I'm so excited to bring you the first episode of our new podcast, created just for community practitioners. Each episode, we will cover a condition that may present in our offices, bringing in Cincinnati Children's Specialists to help answer our questions on the diagnosis and management of these patients. Today, we will consult with Dr. Jola Vargas-Adams and Dr. Scott Callahan on cerebral palsy and all the questions and dilemmas that it can present for our general pediatricians. So let's start by learning a little bit about our esteemed guests. If you could share some information um, with our audience about yourselves, we'll start with Dr. Callahan. How long have you been practicing? And then maybe how long have you been practicing at Cincinnati Children's? So I've been practicing both uh, for 20 years. I've been working for Cincinnati Children's for 20 years. The first 15 years uh, I spent uh, at a primary care practice uh, out in Batesville, Indiana. And for the past five years, I've been the medical director for the Complex Care Center here at Cincinnati Children's. Wonderful. Thank you. Are there any special interests you would like to share with us? I think it's probably in the name of the Complex Care Center, to be honest. Like a lot of primary care docs had those very unique and uh, special kids in the practice and thought, you know, is there some place that I can go to see more of them more often? And Children's happens to be a wonderful place to consolidate all those great kids. It's great and definitely a big need for that within our community. So, And Dr. Vargas Adams, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Yes, well, um, I'm one of those folks who came to Cincinnati for training in our combined program of pediatrics and rehab medicine and fell in the quicksand. And <laughs> so I've been here and practicing in our division of peds rehab medicine for over 20 years now. Um, my area of interest is really in cerebral palsy and that is the focus of almost all of my practice. Um, I have been the director of our CP team clinics and um, am the program director for the CP program. So that's, that's wonderful. I appreciate you sharing and obviously excited to get started as we have a lot of experience here and a lot of knowledge to, to share with the general pediatricians in our community. Um, so our conversation today is on cerebral palsy and specifically early identification and management um, for the general and community pediatrician. Um, cerebral palsy, I would say, is not something we see extremely commonly in our offices. Um, you know, it, I think I've, I've seen some data and kind of preparing for this um, that numbers are somewhere from one to three and a little over 300. Um, you know, I see probably a few newborns per week, uh, and you think kind of weeks per year. So we mainly see one or two patients per year. So in thinking about that, can you kind of share a quick overview of the condition um, and any just facts for our listeners that, that might help us in terms of kind of what to look for, things like that? So cerebral palsy is a big, broad range of things. It's not unlike epilepsy or some other condition that comes in a lot of different flavors and severities. Um, but the hallmarks of CP are that it is a motor problem that results from an insult to the developing brain. And that's the young developing brain, up to you know maybe age two or three, not you know through high school and college age. Um, and that whatever that insult is, it is non-progressive. So 
of course, the biggest associated thing with cerebral palsy is prematurity, but CP can result from any issue that goes on in intrauterine life. Um, it can be a result of infection, trauma, um, you know, any, any insult that would cause damage or um, change in function of the motor areas of the brain. So it leaves a lot of room for the pediatrician to do detective work when they see a baby. Often in our offices for primary care, we start gathering information about our patients and the infants we might be seeing you know, before we even see them, um, specifically even just reviewing records and birth history and things like that. Um, Dr. Callahan, is there anything that you would say, maybe some red flags in, say, the birth history or things that general pediatricians should look for, maybe even before that child, you know, is, is in the office that might help us hone in to be more astute in our initial exam? Sure. So I, I would probably uh, break it down into two ways. Uh, one is it Definitely, there are certain risk factors that Jilda just spoke about, prematurity, infections in utero, um, concerns with postnatal complications, durations in the nursery that kind of had unusual descriptions to them, hypotonia, poor feeding, those sort of things, that when you're reading the, the chart and getting ready to see that newborn for the first time would uh, maybe just make you be a little more diligent in some of your evaluations. I do think that um, individuals with disabilities are the largest minority group in the world. Um, and as a general pediatrician, you're looking for relatively rare occurrences in a generally healthy population. So I would, although I think it's reasonable to look at individuals who have risk factors preceding it, it's also important to screen everybody, right? Like, um, just like we do for lead, um, you know, you can ask questions about the home built in 1972 and whatever, but um, oh, an enormous number of kids have elevated lead levels from things that are not considered high risk. And uh, I think it's uh, reasonable to assume that with something that's this relatively frequent as far as a disability is concerned, uh, it's important to have that same sort of diligence uh, applied to everybody, every newborn who comes into the office. I think that's a great point. I've never heard it explained that way. The largest minority, you know, is disability. So it's a, I think, a wonderful way for the general population who maybe don't work with kids um, with disabilities every day to think about it. So really eye-opening there. So thank you. Oh, I have to credit that to Susan Wiley, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, as a general pediatrician, after that initial visit, we have pretty regular intervals that we will be seeing the children at, you know, Obviously, the birth visit, one month, two months, four months, you know, we're seeing them very, very regularly in the office. Um, and I've realized without consciously thinking about it, I have kind of a unwritten rule that when I look at developmental milestones, I say, you know, if, if a child is not meeting a milestone, I expect that they're going to be meeting at one visit, but at the subsequent visit, they meet it, then we're kind of okay. Uh, do you think it it is a wise guideline to say maybe if we cross two visits of not meeting milestones, is that kind of something that as a general pediatrician is a good thing to think that that should make us want to um, really look into things further or really uh, think about referral at that point or additional workup? Dr. Vargas Adams? 
I certainly think that if a child kind of ticks more than one box of concern, that that's a really good time to stop and consider some of the options to delve a little bit deeper and understand that child's status. And we can talk more about some of the ways that Cincinnati Children's can support that. Um, I would also say, however, that um, sort of the degree to which the child deviates from what is expected is really important. So something that's subtle, um, fairly minor compared to what you expect is not as concerning as a child who maybe it's only one thing that's a concern, but it's a big one. Um, if you can't lift your head up, you know, I don't care how old you are <laughs> or how long it's been. Let's let's try and figure that one out right away. I think that's a, a great way to think about it. it. You know, many things, right, or that might be more mild or just, you know, one big thing. So thank you. Um, are, are there specific, specific exam findings that, you know, may really, which you mentioned, head lag, um, you know, specific tone issues, things like that. But are there very specific things that you look for being um, specialists that see children's with, children with complex needs or children with cerebral palsy that you say, gosh, you know, every general pediatrician, this is exactly, you know, what this happens, this happens, this happens, and they need to kind of have that, that red flag that, you know, we need to get this child more help. Yeah, so remind me, Jill, you can accurately diagnose CP down to the age of about three months, is that correct? We have pretty good evaluative tools um, that allow us to get pretty good predictive accuracy as young as three months if we use the right standardized assessments um, often combined with imaging. And we really feel committed that children with CP should be identified before their first birthday. Um, so that requires everyone working together and pursuing those evaluations in a timely fashion. So for the primary care doc, um, you know, looking for persistent fisting or head lag, less than four months of age, um, should be kind of an early signal. And again, like depending on upon the severity, you might be able to wait to see if that, you know, is still persistent at the next visit. Um, but given the, the goal to get that diagnosis as early as possible, like, again, if it's, if it's significant, if it sets off your alarms as a doc when you walk in the room and you're looking across from that infant, like, um, it's probably worthwhile making that referral earlier rather than later. You know, the, the downside being really nothing, right? Like, you do worry about anxiety that you might present and, and, and precipitate in the parents, but um, uh, for those children in, in the clinic in complex care who have CP as a diagnosis, there's kind of a consistent theme amongst them that it took me too long to get my diagnosis, right? Like that's a frequent, common, recurrent uh, voicing of the parents. And so as a, you know, as a general pediatrician or physician. Um, uh, I, I think that you, you kind of have to walk that line of, you know, trying not to make those patients and parents have an uncomfortable encounter, but just knowing that, you know, that their outcomes are better if you get them in earlier and sooner. Really appreciate you bringing that up too. Um, I think it's something that is not always the easiest to share those sort of concerns with parents and families. And obviously, as you mentioned, Dr. Callahan, a little anxiety provoking, um, 
but I've often found in those cases that one, some of those concerns you bring up, the families and the parents already have those concerns. So sometimes it's just a, a validation for them. And I think most people, as distressing as it can be, appreciate that you have the concerns and you're honest and open with them in sharing those concerns as opposed to, oh, you know, I waited four or six months and said, okay, now I'm really concerned, you know. So I think if, if the end result is getting them things they need sooner, then, you know, that's, there's no negativity to that, so. Yeah. yeah, be consistent, just like I said with the lead screen, like be consistent with your screening for developmental delays, right? Like um, the other issue probably with waiting and skipping is is that um, the well-child visits start to space themselves out in not too long a period of time, right? You see them a lot early. Um, so, but if you hit that six-month mark, then you're going to have a three-month gap till the nine-month visit, and then it's another three months. So, um, uh, so yeah, so the, the hand-fisting, the head lags. Um Distinctive asymmetry in movements, uh, inability to sit unassisted at nine months. Um, you know, if, if you're seeing that at nine months, I wouldn't wait till the 12-month visit to make a referral just for an evaluation. So we touched on this a little bit, um, but maybe Dr. Vargas Adams, if you could answer. You know, if a diagnosis of cerebral palsy is suspected by a general pediatrician, you know, the next step is referral. And we've all kind of said that, but maybe if you could talk a little more in detail about you know, what types of referral, what types of kind of evaluations would be done and how as a general pediatrician that we would make those referrals? Sure. Um, we really want to make sure that these babies can be evaluated in whatever mechanism is most helpful and um, can provide the support and the information that the families and the pediatricians would like. So um, one of our newer options is the infant motor evaluation clinic and uh, this has been around for a couple of years and has been growing really very quickly um, because it's an opportunity for um, pediatricians to make a referral you don't have to say to a family I think your kid might have CP but I don't feel like I'm an expert enough to make the diagnosis but you can have an appointment in three weeks and in the meantime you know spend a lot of time on Google and not sleep um, instead you can say here are the things that you've noticed that I've noticed about your child's motor behavior. We want to send you to get a really uh, comprehensive evaluation. Um, any family that comes to Infant Motor Evaluation Clinic, or we call it IMEC, um, will see a physical therapist who will do the standardized assessments that allow us to score that child's development. And they will see a rehab doc with an expertise in cerebral palsy and a neonatal neurologist. Um, as well as a social worker who is very skilled in working with these families and knows all the resources. So that um, single visit will allow for a diagnostic evaluation and um, the babies that are seen in that setting, and they're all um, under the age of two years, that's a criterion. Um, a, the majority of them will come out of that right now with a diagnosis of CP or a diagnosis of a high risk of CP. Um, and that really is um, sort of this idea, we see reason for concern. Your child does not look entirely typical. We're not ready to make a call that CP will be a permanent diagnosis for them, but we're going to treat them like that 
so that um, we can take advantage of every opportunity to improve their development. Um, because what we do for babies with CP is very low risk, it's low cost, and it can have a high payoff for the kids who um, you know, really have these concerns and can benefit from those kinds of interventions. Wow, that's great. Definitely a lot of a lot of different kind of a multidisciplinary clinic um, that really uh, does a, a sounds like a very detailed and great evaluation. And that all comes right back to the pediatrician to you know support that process as well. Now, if that's not what um, is most desired, of course, babies can still be referred just for therapy. Um, and our outpatient therapy providers, any baby who is in this realm of developmental concerns will be screened um, in a very general way. And if there are concerns that maybe they should be further evaluated for cerebral palsy, the referring provider will, will be messaged with a letter saying, maybe this baby could go to IMEC. Um, here's how you would do that. Um, and then there are also even um, ways you could specifically ask for some of those um, evaluations that we would use otherwise, like the Hammersmith Infant Neurologic Exam um, or the AIMS, the GMA, different ones that are most appropriate, and they can be done by um, our therapists as well. And if I've made a small mistake and sent them to you, Dr. Vargas Adams, and there is no diagnosis, you you're, you manage that as well. Oh, right? of course. Yeah, in rehab medicine, you know, we're always happy to see those babies and, and scratch our heads with you a little bit. <laughs> so well, I've, I've gotten those letters back from, from the IMED clinic, right? Like, thank you for your referral. Uh, although this patient has some um, gross motor delays, we didn't think that any of these um, were related to uh, any static neurologic issues. Um, they may want to continue some f physical therapy from whatever modality is easiest and best for the family to, to contact, but um, they may not, they don't require any further evaluation from the IMEC clinic. Those are also wonderful letters to get back, right? Sure. Um, I love that you both touched on that. I feel like it's something as a general pediatrician I think about a lot is, you know, risk benefit ratio. There's no risk to a referral and evaluation. You know, I'm not referring them for, you know, some. CT scan that's going to increase the risk of cancer or something crazy like that. This is just a referral for an evaluation. Um, there's not really a, a loss there. You know, there's there's not a, a big risk or a negative to a referral. And if the news is good news, then that's wonderful. That's even better. So, and if it's not, at least we've made that referral while they're young and quickly and, you know, just helped everyone in the process, family, patient, um, and pediatrician as well to kind of understand and understand how that process goes and how to get them help sooner. So. And the diagnosis is important, right? Yes. Like because the therapies are different. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not probably in the patient's best interest just to have a referral to a general therapist to receive PT for something if their diagnosis is CP and if they could have therapies directed specifically for that diagnosis. Um, so again, just another good reason to, do it early, either exclude or make the diagnosis. Um, and again, like uh, like your experience, I think most of the families will tell you, I, I, I had a suspicion. Um, doesn't mean I'm happy about the diagnosis, but thanks for having the conversation and helping to guide us in the direction that we need to go for our best outcomes. 
Um, so if a referral has been made and maybe an appointment has been scheduled, one just can, uh, maybe Dr. Vargas Adams, can you talk a little bit about just the access to care, what that weight typically would look like, and if there's anything that maybe the pediatrician can do to help the patient or help the infant in the meantime, and even maybe some resources for families as they wait for that appointment. Yes, so we try really hard to get these babies in as quickly as possible um, into the IMEC appointments, and um, we have been adding more clinics, um, more providers in an effort to meet that need. Um, Usually, we're able to see them expeditiously. If there are concerns, of course, our division welcomes phone calls um, or emails from providers who have concerns, and they and we work directly with the families trying to find ways to make sure their evaluation happens in a timely way. Um, in the meantime, of course, there's no reason that a child can't be referred to therapy um, if you feel like there are goals for them to pursue, and that of course can be in any facility that, that you think would be most appropriate, and certainly county early intervention services are one option. Um, many, many of the therapy services out there are tremendous, um, but not all of them are. So I think it's always useful for the um, pediatrician to ask good questions of families to understand the quality of the therapy they're receiving, um, and then to suggest alternate sources on the occasions that it maybe isn't um, as useful as we would hope. For families who are really looking for more support, if this diagnosis has been discussed and they understand that that might be what is on the horizon for them, there are lots of CP-specific resources. And um, we have a CP line at Children's 803-GO-CP. And that's staffed by our care coordinators who are really good at talking through all kinds of questions with families and getting them where they need to go. When they don't have a diagnosis yet, though, it's very hard, I think, to hand a phone number like that to a family. Absolutely. And so, you know, if there are other specific questions or things, you know, maybe behind the scenes, you could reach out to us. You know, we'd be happy to work with anyone to make sure that um, these kids and their families are getting what they need. Dr. Vargas Adams, you mentioned oftentimes um, we learn our patients are in therapy or involved in therapy, but asking about the quality of the therapy that they're getting is very important. As a general pediatrician, when I'm talking to a patient during their checkup, do you have specific suggestions on how to go about doing that? I think about the babies who um, have these motor concerns and they're uh, in, engaged in therapy with our hopes that we can improve their motor outcomes, you know, change the outcome for these babies and their um, CP or high risk of CP. What's really important is that um, I tell families all the time, therapy is something your baby does, not something that is done to your baby. Um, therapy should be a time when the infant is directly engaged in doing things. Um, the time that the therapist spends with the parent and the infant is really important and should guide what they do otherwise, but the therapy really should continue in between those visits it should be part of their daily experience in their natural environment so that um, babies are continually challenged to develop their motor skills. Some of the um, recent research has demonstrated a real benefit to these active, engaging therapies. They talk about offering babies 
the just right challenge? What is the thing that they almost can do and how do we help them work towards achieving that goal? So you want parents to tell you, well, my therapist does X and Y and I watch my baby do these things and then I practice that with them in between. What you don't want to hear is, my baby slept through their therapy and they just got all these stretches. Okay, that would be a worrisome sign because that is a really passive sort of therapy program. As kids grow older, uh, we also know that what really helps them is, again, task-specific and goal-directed training. So you may find when you send a school-aged child to Cincinnati Children's for therapy, their first visit is all about setting goals. What is it that you want to do? How are we going to achieve that? How do we measure where you stand right now in terms of these things? Here are the things we're going to try, and when we get to the end of this treatment episode, we're going to measure again and see if it worked. That's an example of something that has a strong evidence base behind, uh, you know, that it's going to be helpful and that that child is more likely to benefit from the time and energy that's placed in their therapy. Great. So if the parent can identify goals and tell you what they're working on at home, that generally is a pretty good guide that things are going well with therapy. Indeed. As a pediatrician uh, that develops relationships with these families and with these patients over time, um, you know, I, I've kind of often thought a lot of our focus, as it should be early on, is on, you know, physical strength and functionality and things like that as they grow and develop with a diagnosis of cerebral palsy. But are there ways that, specific ways or things that you, either one of you can think of to help actually support their mental health as well? Um, maybe different programs or um, different ways to support the emotional growth of the patient? I, I think that families, you know, when they get a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, yeah, their first question is, will my child walk? And um, it's an important question and one we all want to address, except we also know that you can get through life pretty well if you can't walk. But if you um, don't have meaningful ways to interact with the people around you, um, it's a lot harder. And so um, I think a beginning piece is just really looking at those parts of cognitive development that we can support and um, encourage all of the interaction with the world that these kids can have from a very young age. So that's everything from powered mobility to augmentative communication. Um, finding ways for these children to be integrated in their community and encouraging those things. Um, we're lucky in this country because there are a lot of supports for people with disabilities. Um, I think probably everyone listening to this podcast will be well aware of the way public education is structured to support kids with disabilities. But um, we need to make sure that all of these kids and their families are aware of what they should receive. And then, um, yes, sharing those other resources to help them um, be kids. So um, where are the recreational opportunities that they can engage with regularly? Um, everything from you know the Challenger Baseball Leagues all around town to um, Children's Own Be Well programs that are for kids with disabilities. Um, I think all of that really makes a difference. But maybe when you talk about mental health, the most important thing is just being aware that just because you have a physical or an intellectual disability or both 
that um, it doesn't mean you can't also have anxiety or depression or any of the other things that are common in every other kid uh, and, and treating them just as you would another one. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful point because sometimes I do feel like we get so tied up in all the other things to talk about, you know, their mobility there, which are huge, but just, you know, they can have anxiety, they can have depression, they can have that, and maybe even more at risk for some of that, just with their their challenges. Yeah, I, the diagnosis and the spectrum of symptoms is just enormous, right? Like, there are, there are individuals with CP who have exceedingly minor gait abnormalities, and that's their only symptom of CP. Um, and they may require more effort related to mental health, uh, those sort of things, uh, because of the recognition of their disability, um, which uh, maybe impacts their quality of life uh, on a daily, you know, daily basis, but maybe isn't recognized so much by the people around them, right? Like, uh, that's a hard diagnosis in and of itself. Um, and, and then, uh, so I, I use psychiatry and, and uh, DDBP and uh, neuropsych to kind of, you know, give me guidance here and there uh, as a general pediatrician, kind of making referrals to them to see what resources or um, what modalities are uh, best uh, allocated to each one of those individuals based upon their symptoms. Um, it's the way I kind of float through and navigate that. Great. Cincinnati Children's, I believe, has an adaptive sports clinic, too. The adaptive sports clinic really seeks to help kids engage in sports regardless of their disability. So um, it can be particularly helpful when there are um, special pieces of equipment that will allow kids to participate um, when they otherwise wouldn't be able to problem solving around particular impairments that impact maybe just one or two aspects of participation in a specific sport. Um, and even helping kids who have a disability figure out which sports are gonna be great for them. And, um, and so we have uh, physical therapists with a, a real passion about uh, adaptive sport and um, and ensuring that everybody has the opportunity to be active. And so if you've got a kid who is trying to find their, you know, the thing that they want to do or is really struggling because they know what they love, but it's not working, um, it's a great opportunity to kind of problem solve right there on that issue. Great. And for our pediatricians listening, is that just a referral through physical therapy, but just with specifics in terms of adaptive sports clinic? Yep. Okay, great. Easy enough. Do either one of you have anything else you would like to share with our listeners today? Um, Maybe just a couple more resources that come to mind. Uh, One that I use uh, and give to parents, not infrequently, is uh, the Children's uh, Hospital Special Needs Directory. Uh, Traditionally, it's been uh, updated fairly regularly. Uh, I think that there are some plans to actually move some of the specifics of the directory to the websites of the disorders or diseases that people may be looking for in particular. So there may be some changes that soon, but uh, it's a it's a wonderful resource and gets you to places like um, uh, patient uh, or or parent community groups or 
the Miracle League for the uh, for the baseball uh, for the kids. Um, so it's a nice way for parents to navigate them themselves through whatever their diagnosis is and find some resources for them. So there's also the Perlman Center uh, where I make referrals to frequently. They have a lot of things underneath of their umbrella that I, I don't always mentally keep track of, but they are a repository of a lot of uh, a lot of skill sets. Uh, they do a lot of DME issues, wheelchairs, walkers, those sort of things. They work a lot with the augmentative communication devices, uh, and they also have um, early interventions related to therapies that are available to uh, kids who meet criteria for that. So uh, I send a lot of referrals to the Perlman Center. I, I guess in just adding on a few other little things, when I'm talking to the parents, uh, homes, accessibility, there are uh, a few organizations uh, in the community that uh, will uh, do things like build ramp access to homes, uh, who will um, make home modifications. Um, Perlman can help you with some of those evaluations, but some of those community resources can actually help you with the implementations of those. Uh, I find the social workers to be just an enormous wealth of information. So if there's some way for, your, for a group or a practice to have access to a social worker who has uh, acquired skill and experience when dealing with children with special health care needs uh, and the community resources that are available to them, that's probably a nice, uh, nice avenue for each practice to look into. Great. That's wonderful information. I definitely wasn't aware of the special needs directory actually at all, which, you know, I'm ashamed to say, but, you know, that's, that's why we have these, right? This is, is the point of, I think, doing this, this podcast. So I, I appreciate the learning that I'm gaining out of it, as well as hopefully our listeners. Well, I think we are kind of wrapping up for today. I want to thank you both so much for joining us and um, shining light on this topic that is very important um, to so many of our patients, uh, families, and then just very paramount to our physicians to be able to learn to identify um, early on. It's It's been wonderful having you here, um, and I hope everyone listening uh, has enjoyed the time together today as much as we have. Um, and just to mention that we also have a community practice support tool for cerebral palsy for our general pediatricians that you can visit the um, podcast website for more info and for access to that community practice support tool. Thank you. And thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. Future episodes of the Pediatric Consult will be eligible for CME credit. We were so excited to get this episode to you that we are sharing it without, but please look out for it in our next episode.